You're listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers. Hello, I'm Carolyn Myers. And I am Terry Baum. And together we are... The Crackpot Crones. Carolyn Myers here, speaking to you solo. My dear crony, Terry Baum, is preparing the first draft of a new play. So it's just me, here, all alone in the Crackpot Crones podcast universe. I decided to reach out and do an interview with a great theater woman, Martha Bosing. She has written over 40 produced plays, led countless workshops, and directed for theaters throughout the country. Martha was the founding artistic director of At the Foot of the Mountain Theater in Minneapolis, the longest-running professional women's theater in the country, and arguably the most prominent theater of the feminist theater movement of the 1970s and 1980s. This interview covers the beginning years of the company. Our story starts in 1974, when, after working for two years, as playwright-in-residence at the Academy Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, Martha and her then-husband Paul and their three children moved back to Minneapolis, where they had been prominent members of the experimental Firehouse Theater in the 1960s, sometimes working together as a lyricist and composer team. Two other couples, Jeff and Kathy, and a different Jeff and Jan, who were acting in an evening of one acts Martha had written, decided to move with them. These six people were producing the show they had and creating a new show, a musical about heterosexual couples weathering the changes of the times, including the rise of feminism. They wanted to form a theater company, but they could not decide on a name. We sat in my living room and said, okay, what are we going to call ourselves? So we threw the I Ching. And the I Ching said, at the foot of the mountain is the spring. So we go, at the foot of the mountain. God, that's no title for a theater. (laughs) (laughs) It became so faddish that everybody called themselves, you know, in the mouth of the lion. Right, right, right. But at the time, we went, this is ridiculous. Throw it again. Do the I Ching again. And it said, the wise person never asks the same question. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've had, I was, I threw the I Ching a lot at one point in my life, and I'm familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> so we got stuck with the name at the foot of the mountain. The name held, but the marriages didn't. First, Paul left to discover his identity as a gay man. And then the two Jeffs left to seek career opportunities. Then Kathy, one of the three women, left to begin her lifetime work as a therapist. That left only Martha and Jan. We put on a play that I wrote called River Journal. Oh. And we got it produced in a big local community church that put on lots of plays. They had a stage and they the whole work. So we produced it there. And it was about a woman who was married and she had these two sisters. One was a very flirty, seductive woman and one was a very down-to-earth, earth mother making the soup, getting everybody fed, etc. person, right? 
and and then there was the great goddess of something seed. I can't remember her, but she she came out as a kind of Hindu goddess with green face, and she would comment all the time and try to talk Jan, the lead in it, uh, and it was her journal to get the out of this marriage. <laughs> he, of course, liked the two other women a lot better than her because they fulfilled their jobs and exactly they were supposed to around men. So this play hit Minneapolis like a storm. People were lined up around the block to get it. It was just phenomenal because they'd never seen anything like it. Well, there wasn't very much like it. I mean, this is when you brought, because now from what you've told me in this interview, now you've gone from writing stuff that is, realistic in a certain extent and you've brought in the goddess and you're in another oh yeah and we had realm. a huge white wreath on the wall in the back of the theater made out of tampons yeah <laughs> you know, it, was, it was extremely feminist and she finally and finally the goddess said you've got to get rid of those two women they're fake you've made them up they're not real kill them <sighs> so uh, she does and oh, so she does. Was and she ends up liberated. Wow. And let me tell you, the women in Minneapolis went crazy about this. They had never seen anything like it on the stage, right? Yes, yes. And they just flipped out before it went up. Did you know that it was going to no, be? No, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> but see, I think that that is a sign of really revolutionary work. Is that you don't. Yeah. You don't know because not only had they never seen it, there really wasn't anything like this, Martha. No, I even read it recently again. It's a good play. It's a really yeah. good play. Jan played the lead, and she's just unbelievable. And she made all the costumes, and we worked on it together. So you were the playwright, and Jan was the lead, and you had a composer. And then Jan also did the costumes. And, and was there more of a crew, too? Or no, you- I directed it, and uh-huh. Jan and I did all the work yes (laughs) it's just phenomenal and serendipitous things happened that made this play just hit the top of the mark you know yeah so suddenly we had a couple of other women attracted to us and an audience well we knew we had yes right a big audience so we all started gathering a little group of people, there were five or six of us with Jan and me and about four other people to see whether we could put on plays together. And meanwhile, Paul was out of the picture. He was in San Francisco figuring out that he was really gay. And I get a call from Phyllis Jane Rose, who is a professor down at the University of Illinois, to see whether she could put my play Pimp on to take to Washington, D.C. So she calls me to ask me permission to do this. And uh, I start talking with her on the phone. And she said, I have found my playwright. She said, I've been looking for my playwright for a long time. And I haven't found her. But now I found her. Wow. And I want to come up. How thrilling. I mean, it's just such a dream for a playwright to have somebody say that. I know. It was really thrilling. And she put on River Journal also at her college. So first she came up to see my production of it. So here I am 
at the airport meeting her, I said, you'll know me because I'll have a rose between my teeth. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And she expected me to come in pants because she's a bull dyke. So um, I came in a long skirt and big high boots and, you know, the old hippie costume. Yeah. Didn't recognize me at first. I recognized her in a flash. But but anyway, she then came back to the house, saw the play. I had fallen completely, madly, passionately in love with Philip. Ah, yes. So she said, come down and see my production. So I did. I went to Southern Illinois to see her production. And I didn't like it. It he was too involved with the realist, linear play world and didn't know how to handle all the imagery in it. It had a lot of imagistic scenes in it. Very radical. Right. Anyway, Phyllis couldn't handle some of that because she just wasn't anywhere near that world. She was in a linear, you know, she did Tennessee Williams and she did. Right, right. She didn't know how to direct this thing. But that was okay. I was so in love, I didn't care. (laughs) Um, So she said, I'm leaving. And she quit school teaching. She was a professor. She was head of the theater department at Southern Illinois University. She quit school and moved up to Minneapolis to get a place to live there and work with me and this oh, this little great. group of women who had come together to work. Yeah. So were you both were you both in love at this point? Oh, yeah. So she came in and this little group of women by now we had kind of bonded weren't so fond of her. But they were willing to go along because Martha brought her in, right? Right. So that's where some of the troubles with Foot of the Mountain came. But that all got ironed out as Foot of the Mountain found its way. And I became the AD and she became the managing director. And she was a wonderful managing director. So then there we were and we were saying, okay, maybe we need to do a play. So what should we do? We landed on Bertolt Brecht's The Exception and the Rule. Oh, The Exception and the Rule. Yes. You know that play? I do know that play. We did it when I was in college, actually. The Exception and the Rules is a play written by Bertolt Brecht in 1929. In its final courtroom scene, the murderer, a merchant, is acquitted. The judge concludes that the merchant had every right to fear a potential threat from his porter because of the intrinsic oppressive nature of the relationship between a rich man and his so-called coolie. Therefore, he was justified in shooting the porter in self-defense, regardless of whether there was an actual threat or whether the merchant simply felt threatened. As feminists, at the foot of the mountain saw parallels with many rape trials of the time, where perpetrators were acquitted of rape, basically because of the intrinsically oppressive nature of the relationship between men and women. The man was justified in forcibly raping a woman, the courts concluded again and again, if he felt his victim was asking for it, regardless of any actual circumstances. We decided that we would do a little play called Rape, based on Bertolt Brecht's The Exception and the Rule. And we did a play about rape. We ran off, did tremendous research, brought in stories, research, etc. Oh, and the Pillsbury Community Theater gave us a space to do this in. And we performed this play. First of all, we papered the walls that the audience came in with stories about rape and women abuse and that kind of uh-huh. pictures of women being battered and that kind of thing. So it was just, you walk in the door and you're already in trouble. And yeah, well, that's a great way to express it. So it had this very 
open, strange feminist touch to it, right? And then Paul wrote the music for it, and we put it on, and again, people were lined up around the block. Oh, so great. But now we really had become a company. And what was your structure when you became a company? How did We were communal, we were collective, and then after raped, as we moved forward into the other place that we did there, and we did Story of a Mother, which was the most radical play we ever did. So we were a collective. And then who was the radical woman who wrote novels and still is writing novels? She loved cats. You mean Rita Mae Brown? Rita Mae Brown. Rita Mae Brown said, look, guys, we cannot work collectively because, in fact, it's not true. You probably have a visionary who's the leader. Right. Everybody right. turns to and says, what do you think? And then you that's right. the visionary th- says to do it, even if it's subtle. And in your case, it wasn't quite so subtle because you were the playwright. Yes, but that wasn't the problem as much as the fact that I was also the one who would say, well, I think everybody would say what they want. And then I'd say, I think blah, blah, blah. And that was what would happen. I see. Yeah. And, and then you also have, says Rita May. A managing director, a person who holds it together by being the kind of manager who also does all the fundraising and administrative stuff, but she's the one that is sort of the Mother Earth character. And that was clearly going to be Phyllis because she was the one who was helping with all the details. So we have to fess up to the fact that that's how we really are organized. And so I I became the visionary leader. And everybody relaxed. All our fights stopped. Everything stopped. Everything got cool. It was great. Everybody's in the collective, but it's not a collective really anymore. Right, right. I get that. In fact, we said we're not a collective. We're a collaborative. People loved working at the foot of the mountain. Phyllis really wanted an office, and we didn't have a place that we could park. And I was a member of the Playwright Center. In fact, I was the second woman ever to be part of the Playwright Center. It was a very male organization. So the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. It's still going, and it's national. If you want a playwright and you want to connect into somebody who will get you lined up right, you go to Minneapolis. Yeah. And that's still true today. Yeah, I know that Minneapolis has a huge theater-going population compared to everywhere else. Yeah, we say why, and they say, well, the theater's better. And the reason the theater's better is because the Dayton Foundation said, we are going to give 5% of our gross net worth to theaters. Oh, how wonderful. And that included the little theaters. It's coming up to a time when we're all going to be on salary we're all going to be at unemployment when we go off. We were really set up that way because we could, because we had all these grants from local foundations. Right. So there we are. And we and I was a member of the Playwright Center, still am a lifelong member. And I knew they had moved into this old church on Franklin Avenue. And I knew they had rooms in there that they weren't using. So I said to them, could we have a rent in some way, a room for you, from you to put a foot of the mountain up? And they said, well, okay, here's the deal. The whole rickety old church was then warmed in the middle of the coldest winter in Minneapolis, you can imagine. Oh. So they said, if you will come over all winter long at 630 in the morning and shovel the coal into the furnace, we will let you have that room as an office. Wow. And we took turns. We took. Oh my gosh, it's such a 
Who's a basic to, thing. Whose day is it to get up, drive through a winter storm over to the Playwright Center, park your damn car somewhere, and go inside and shovel coal for a half shovel an hour? Shovel coal. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> and all of us did it. Chillis did it. I did it. The cast, the cast yeah. we all did. Yeah. Anyway, that's how we got finally a place. Okay, then we went back to the Pillsbury Community Center and put on a play called The Story of a Mother. Yeah. This became our key, key play. Well, tell me some about the play itself. That's the one, that's the show I knew about before I met you. This show went bursting out national. I mean, I say that we were, uh, people were lining around the block, but that was true about all our shows. We were exceptionally popular. Yes. Well, let me just tell you about preparation for this. Okay. We decided that we really needed to investigate our relationship with our mothers. That's what we needed to do. And look at it clearly and wholly now. Right. A lot of us were pissed off at our mothers. Yes. And um, so we needed to look at that and see if we could resolve that. So I invented this long, somewhat tedious meditation in which you became your mother. And we did that every day for months. Wow. And we did it every day. And we really came to begin to understand our mothers a little better. And then we did a thing called the judgments, where Uh we did a mock trial. And some of us were on the jury and some was the judge. And one person played the mother, your mother, and then you were there. And so you begin saying, okay, mom, she's on trial. I just want to tell you all the things that drove me crazy about you. Uh-huh. When you tell your mother what was so difficult about growing up with her yeah, and all the little problems. And then you switched and you played the mother. And the person who was playing the mother played you and repeated all those judgments and got your mother, me now, uh, yes. saying – what it was like to be the mother of this child in her life and what her life was like, and, yes. which was terrible. Of course, that's why mothers were awful because they had had. Right. Because I mean, they all grew up at a more repressed right. time. Let's so face we, it. So we really began to forgive our mothers and appreciate them. And this was the really crowning thing about it. We hired a therapist who actually was Kathy, one of our original uh, members of the collective that came up from um, Atlanta who wow. and had become a therapist. And she she came in and we would do the meditation, become our mothers, and then come into a therapy session as our mothers. And we're told you can say anything you want, except you cannot say, oh, I'm fine. Or you can't say Nothing, nothing's problem there. You can't do that. You have to close your eyes and go deeper and tell me exactly what you're really feeling. So there we were once a week in these therapy sessions as our mothers. Yeah. That was a revelation and a half. Yeah. It was just exceptionally, exceptionally powerful. And out of that, I wrote the play. Wow. And um, but we improvised a lot of it. So it was me, but it was uh, some of it was improvised with the cast and me hanging it all together and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And in it, it had these breaks and we began began to be famous for audience rituals or break ins or something. 
uh-huh. at the theater. This became a, a mark of ours that almost every play we did had a moment of audience working with us. I see. And oh. this play, we asked everybody in the audience to close their eyes <laughs> and see if they can become their mothers. By, I took them through the meditation. I was sitting on the stage, and I took them through the meditation. Uh-huh. My God, most of them did it. And then I said, okay, I want you to answer this question. I always said, and in the first, that was the first meditation. And, and they would say, get the get your hair out of your eyes. Come to the table. Why are you so late? Time to go to bed now. Go to bed. I mean, they would say things like that, right? Yeah. The next meditation, another chunk of the play went by. The next meditation, which I led also was, I never said, oh, they'd say, I never said I was jealous of you. I yeah. never said I'm really pissed at your father. I, you know, and things like that. Yeah. It was so profound. And once again, it was, <laughs> once again, it was lined up around the block to get in. And then people started coming back with right. mothers. Oh, oh. Yeah, mother was meditating to become the grandmother. Yeah, um, and that just would knock your socks off. And again, they would do these meditations, and then at the end, we would we had um, the big mother come out. Jan was sitting on the uh, shoulders of one of the women who was a little stronger, and she had a long white dress on. It all went down over the floor, and she sat up there, and the audience was given ribbons of any color they wanted. Uh-huh. And to go up, including black ones, and and place them. They would come up one at a time and place them on the on the mother. So that yeah. by the end of this block, you had this white dressed huge woman. I mean, she was of course very tall, and it was covered with these beautiful ribbons everywhere. It became very beautiful, and then at the very end, we um, passed out bread uh, and asked people to feed their mothers i mean i often think this was the most radical play we ever did it really changed people's lives no it really seems like one of the most radical things i've ever heard it was just extraordinary extraordinary thank you martha for this interview i first met martha when lilla theater produced her play trespasso in the early 1980s Martha came to see the production and led a day-long workshop at the then brand new Women's Building in San Francisco, based on the techniques developed for the play Mother. She now lives in Oakland, California with her partner Sandy Boucher, close to her four grandchildren, and has become a dear friend. Martha continues her artistic work including writing the play Sylvia's Advice on How to Age Gracefully on the Planet Denial based on Nicole Hollander's cartoon strip, Sylvia, and creating theater pieces with the Faithful Fools, a street ministry in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. You've been listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers. (laughs) 